Let's turn together to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. We're going to finish Colossians this morning. So Colossians 4, and turn to verse 7. We're going to read to the end of the chapter from verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that, he may, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you fulfill it. The salutation by my hand, by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this letter to the Colossians that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write so long ago. And we thank you for the relevance that it has to our lives today. Lord, I pray that as we read and as we look at this passage that we just read, that you would teach us about yourself, teach us about ourselves. And God, that we would hear from you this morning because you want to speak to us. Please give us ears to hear, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and receive all glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage that we just read gives us a little window into the social network of the early church. In fact, this is the second largest passage in the New Testament that gives us a, a window like that into the early church. Do you know where the biggest one is? Romans chapter 16. The whole chapter is just Paul writing to, about people and say hello to so-and-so and tell so-and-so this and that. So this is the second largest passage in the New Testament that just exclusively deals with just early church stuff. And we might think, what's the value for us to read this? Because these are people that are long gone, right? You can't go knock on someone's door named Tychicus anymore. He's not there. 
But this is extremely valuable to us simply because, number one, it is in the Word of God. And the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God. And all Scripture is useful for us for doctrine and instruction and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped and useful for every good work, right? So do you believe that this passage is important as well? Of course it is. And we can learn a lot from it. It's not just interesting, and it is interesting. I find this very interesting, by the way, because it gives us a look into the early church and, and people who really lived back then and how Paul related to them and how the Christians related to one another. It's very interesting. But there's also important lessons to be learned, and that's what I hope we can see this morning. And you'll notice there's a lot of people listed in this passage, isn't there? And so this morning, what I hope to do is just just briefly look, little biographical sketches at these people. And I want you to ask yourself as we go, with whom do you relate with the most? Okay? What, who do you resonate with the most as we go? So the first person we see here in verse 7 and 8 is a man named Tychicus. Tychicus. Now we know from Acts 20, verse 4, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, the man's from Asia. Now Asia, when we think of Asia today, we think of this huge continent, right, of Asia. But when the Bible says the word Asia, it's actually referring to the western part of Turkey. That was a province of the Roman Empire called Asia. Just the western part along the coast of Turkey. And that's where Tychicus is originally from. We know from Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Tychicus was a regular messenger of Paul. In Titus 3, verse 12, Paul says, I might send Tychicus to you or I might send somebody else. I don't know yet. But the point is that this is earlier on in Paul's ministry. Paul's not in prison when he's writing to Titus. But he's saying, maybe I'll send Tychicus to you. I'm not sure. So Tychicus was someone that Paul, this is not the first time he sends Tychicus somewhere. And here he's saying to the Colossians, he's saying, from Rome, Paul's living in Rome, he's saying, I will send Tychicus. Tychicus is already, he's already come to you if you've read this, because he's the bearer of the letter to the Colossians. In the Civil War, you would have messengers, right? In the Civil War, You'd have generals, and the generals were in charge of the armies, and the generals were the guys who made all the big decisions. But then they would have messengers, and if you've ever seen a Civil War movie, how many of you have ever seen a Civil War movie before? You know what I mean? Or some war back in the day before they had telephones, right? And radios and walkie-talkies. What would they do? They would send guys on horseback. And one thing will strike you in, the, in Civil War movies or such, the generals always sitting there on the horse, and there's constantly messengers coming and going from it all the time, isn't there? Constantly. One guy comes, he says, send this order to this guy, send this order to this guy, and the horses are always running and running and running. You see, if Paul lived in the days of internet, then he could just send an email. He could have sent an email to the Colossians. But because he didn't, he needed messengers. But we might think, well, messengers aren't so important. Might, the messenger himself might think, I wish I was a general, and I wish I was someone more important, because... I'm so insignificant, the army doesn't even need me. Who am I? But if you know anything about the history of the Civil War, you know Gettysburg was the conclusive battle in the war, 
And it was lost because of the messengers, wasn't it? Robert E. Lee, his messengers weren't doing their job. One of his scouts didn't do their job, and he didn't really know what was going on, and then he found himself in the battle and had to play it from there, and he lost. I remember growing up, there was this child's film that I watched, and one of the lessons in the film was about how uh, even the most insignificant is significant. It was about a circus, and there was like all these famous circus artists. There was the strong man, and there was the trapeze artist, and there was the, the lady who stood on the elephant, and then there was the man who drove the pegs into the tent. And he was like, I'm so, I wish I was like that guy and that guy and that guy. And that person, they're, they're the ones who are famous. They're the ones who make this circus happen. No one needs me. And he didn't show up one day. And so the tent blew away. <laughs> and everyone, it blew on everybody. And, and they're all like, where's that guy? Where's that guy? <laughs> yeah, he became suddenly very important. <laughs> you see, what happens if there was no men like Tychicus and all we had was the Apostle Paul? What would happen if there wasn't these lesser known servants of God? who carried the message of Paul and of the apostles, essentially carrying God's word and risking their life to do that. Do you know it was very dangerous to travel back in those days? There's bandits and there was bad weather and you're not driving in an SUV with air conditioning, right? (laughs) You're not jumping on a plane. We should be thankful. How many of you ever have been thankful to God for men like Tychicus? Have you ever said, thank you God for Tychicus? You know, because if he didn't do what he did, we wouldn't have any knowledge of the Apostle Paul. Men like Tychicus. And Paul has high praise for him here. He says three things about him. He's a beloved brother, he's a faithful minister, and he's a fellow servant in the Lord. And we should be thankful for him. Maybe you relate with Tychicus. I think in heaven, when we finally are gathered with all the saints. We're going to see men, you know, we, we often don't think about seeing Tychicus in heaven. We think about, I want to see the Apostle Paul. I can't wait to see Moses, right? I think, honestly, when we get to heaven, we're going to realize, oh, wow, you're, Tych- you're Tychicus. And then we're going to realize this is a really precious brother full of wisdom and grace and love for the saints. And we're going to want to hang around with guys like that, you know? In verse 8, Paul doesn't just send him with a letter, but he also says, I send him unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. And remember, when we look at the word comfort, it actually means fortify. Not, he's just going to come along and stroke your back and say, everything's okay. You know, He's going to come along and, and fortify you. He's going to come along and encourage you and strengthen your faith and strengthen your heart. Paul knew that men that are willing to carry letters are also, are also able to strengthen the church as well. And so what would Tychicus strengthen them with? Probably the exact same thing that the letter basically says. Everything we know in this letter about the sufficiency of Christ, the danger of departing from the simplicity of Christ. Tychicus would come and not just give the letter, but by his own preaching and by his own teaching, by his own encouragement, would say the same things to the church. And in verse 9, we meet Onesimus. And this is the very first mention in the New Testament of this person named Onesimus. And we know who Onesimus is 
from the book of Philemon. Philemon is the book after Titus and before Hebrews. It's a very short book in the New Testament. And we're going to study that next after Colossians. That's the next thing we're going to study at All Saints is the book of Philemon. And we're going to get well acquainted with Onesimus. So I'm not going to exhaustively share about him. What we know about Onesimus is that he was actually a slave to a Christian man in Colossae named Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae and he had a slave. Because a lot of people had slaves back then. It was very common. And Onesimus wasn't a Christian. Onesimus ran away from Philemon and he went to Rome. It's well known by secular Greek writers that the rabble of society and runaway slaves would make their way to Rome. Because Rome was big, you could get lost in the crowd. There's lots of things to do there for people that were up to no good. He went to Rome, but of course Paul was a prisoner in Rome. We don't know how Onesimus got into contact with Paul, but he did. Maybe he heard about this man, the Apostle Paul. Who knows what happened? God obviously was sovereign in bringing Onesimus to Paul. Who knows what happened? Maybe he was walking by Paul's house one day and noticed a crowd and just kind of came over to see what was up and heard the gospel of Jesus. But Onesimus became a Christian. You'll notice in this letter, Onesimus is traveling now with Tychicus back to Colossae. That's kind of a shocking, bold thing to send a runaway slave back to his master. In those days, a runaway slave was to be crucified if he was caught. And Paul sends him back to Colossae. What what is this telling us? Something powerful, I think. Paul is confident Philemon will receive him and not have him crucified. Isn't that amazing? Paul is confident in the gospel in the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ, that this man Philemon is going to receive Onesimus. And by the way, Onesimus is carrying the letter of Philemon as well, to Philemon. The letter to Philemon we're going to study next. Onesimus is carrying it, so he's going to give it to Philemon. Here, (laughs) read this. The The gospel is powerful to reconcile even the worst case scenarios and to bring friends back into relationship again and to save lives without grace that would be lost. But one thing to notice here is that Onesimus is called a faithful brother. He's full of faith and he's trustworthy and he's a new Christian. And the thing I want to point out here is that new Christians can be faithful. Some people think, "Ah, if you're a new Christian... It's just to be expected that you're not going to be faithful. And that's just something that comes along slowly in the process of time. Not according to Paul, Onesimus couldn't have been a Christian very long before Paul sent him back. But he called him a faithful and beloved brother. So if you're a new Christian, maybe you relate to Onesimus, you can be faithful. And older Christians shouldn't look down on, young, on new, new Christians and think, uh, you have nothing to offer or you've got a lot of growing to do. Sure they do, but who doesn't, right? 
But new Christians can be faithful. And if you are a new Christian who has been using that as an excuse to not be faithful, don't use it anymore. Because Onesimus was faithful from the beginning. Full of faith and trustworthy. A beloved brother. We'll talk lots more about Onesimus. Then in verse 10 and 11, we have three Jewish Christians who are mentioned. Three Jewish believers in Jesus. They are Aristarchus, Mark, or Marcus in the King James, but it's really Mark in our English, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Paul says in verse 11, These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. Of the Jews is what he means. Not that these are the only guys that are with me, because he says Luke is with me, Demas is with me, Epaphras is with me. What he means is these only of my Jewish kinsmen are with me. Now, Aristarchus, or excuse me, Jesus who is called Justice, we know virtually nothing about him at all, except that he's Jesus who is called Justice. (laughs) That's all we know about him. Jesus, or he was a Jew, so really his word is Joshua, Yeshua. Um, They also called him justice, which means righteous, which is interesting. So maybe we we can infer, we can't say this for sure, but maybe we can infer that when he became a Christian, they changed his name to righteous, just to highlight the fact that he was righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know that. That's all we know about him. We know a little bit more about Aristarchus because Aristarchus, his name comes up all throughout the book of Acts. He's a companion and traveler with Paul all throughout the book of Acts. Do a search on him in the concordance. He's traveling with Paul many, many places and now he's in Rome with Paul even while Paul's in his chains. As a matter of fact, it says Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner with Paul in verse 10. He's a man that stands by the apostle Paul And Mark, we know a lot more about Mark. Mark is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. The same Mark. And that's a lot to know about him. So the man, Mark, is with Paul in Rome, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Probably has a copy with him. Paul probably enjoyed reading it. But we know a lot more about Mark, too. Mark was actually a deserter of Paul. When Paul went on his very first missionary journey with Barnabas, and we know here that Mark is the nephew of Barnabas, Mark came along with them. Mark lived in Jerusalem. He was a young man when Jesus was crucified. He actually followed the the disciples and Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane and kind of got mixed up in that whole thing and ran away naked. Remember that guy? He ran away naked. That was Mark, the young man. But after Jesus had risen from the dead, Mark believed, and he became a Christian, and he hung out with the apostles. And he went on the very first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, his uncle. But we don't know why, but not long into that first missionary journey, Mark took off and went back to Jerusalem. And the word in the Greek is actually he abandoned them. He abandoned Paul. So much so that later in Paul's life, when Paul was going to go on another missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's bring Mark along. And Paul said, no way. (laughs) No. We're not bringing him along. 
He departed from us. He abandoned us. He left us, and we're not bringing him. It wouldn't be wise. And Barnabas and Paul disagreed about it so much that they actually went on their own separate missionary journeys. Barnabas took his nephew, and Paul chose Silas to go with him. So there's this fascinating story that you can see throughout the early church records of Paul and this man Mark. And now Mark is with Paul in Rome. And he says, if Mark happens to come to you at some point, receive him. Because this story would have been well known. The story would have been trickling around in the early church. And people probably would have thought, well, if Paul didn't want him to be around, you know, then maybe we should not receive him. If he comes by, say, go away, Mark. Paul did not want that attitude to be in the church. If Mark comes to you, then receive him, he says. Later, from, later on from this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And he writes, and Mark had left Rome at this point. And in, to Timothy, it is 2 Timothy, where are we here? 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Here, flip there for one moment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Just a few verses. Keep your finger in Colossians, though. Some people think that this is when they were reconciled, right here. Some people think that this is when Paul and Timothy were reconciled, but it's not true. It says here, 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, he writes to Timothy. This is, this is some years later after the letter to the Colossians has been written. He says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. This is not Paul finally writing a letter to say, Okay, bring Mark along because he's useful to me. Paul and Mark have been reconciled for a lot longer. Now we're just seeing a beautiful relationship that exists between them after they've been reconciled. This is not the reconciliation between Paul and Mark. But it is a beautiful thing that at one time, Mark deserts Paul. Paul says he's not allowed to come with us. They are reconciled. Mark is with him in Rome. And later on, you see a beautiful relationship. He says, bring Mark along. I want to see him again. He's useful to me. So it's a beautiful thing. Maybe you relate to Mark. Maybe you have failed in your Christian walk and you've sinned or done something that's brought the displeasure of some other believers. But the message of Mark is essentially this, that there's forgiveness and reconciliation in Christianity for even those who have failed. And deserting the Apostle Paul was a big sin. That's a big deal. So much so that he drew the displeasure of Paul. You know, you don't want to be on Paul's bad side. But there is forgiveness in Christianity, even for, even for those who fail. If you feel like you have failed, maybe in a duty or in, in something like, some people believe that God has told them to do something and they didn't do it. And so they feel like, oh, I'm a failure and obviously God has no more use for me anymore. Have you ever felt that way or do you know anyone who's felt that way? You think, because I failed God at one point, therefore he has no more use for me. Because I wasn't faithful when I was supposed to be. Well, the Apostle Paul, who is a man filled with the Spirit, yes, he exercised church discipline upon Mark by saying, no, he can't come. But there was forgiveness and reconciliation, and Mark was 
useful and profitable to Paul in the end. So there's forgiveness for you if you fail. Don't feel that because you've sinned or failed that that's the end for you. God does not work that way. Next, verse 12 and 13. One more thing I'll say before we go to Epaphras about the Jewish believers. In verse 11, he says, These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. And actually, the word comfort there is a different Greek word than the one fortify. This one actually means soothing. This one means that in the Greek. The back, the back rub. <laughs> this is the comfort the soothing that Paul is receiving from these men. And you know why? Because Paul's number one opponents were the Jewish, Jewish people, his own brethren, weren't they? If you read in the book of Acts, the number one opponent to the Apostle Paul in the Gospel isn't the Romans, it's the Jewish non-Christians. It's the Jews who don't believe in Jesus. Or it's the Jews who profess a faith in Jesus and yet oppose the Gospel of Jesus. And that's a grief to Paul. You can see that. Even in Romans, he says, it's a constant sorrow in my heart. But when you have in his own Jewish brethren, those who stand with him and believe the gospel, it's a comfort to the Apostle Paul. Now let's look at Epaphras. We've already seen Epaphras in Colossians. In chapter 1, we have learned in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, that it was Epaphras who actually brought the gospel to the Colossians in the first place because the Apostle Paul hadn't actually been to Colossae. And Epaphras, look at, notice in verse 12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you? Do you see that? And notice it said that of Onesimus as well, he is one of you. That means these men were from Colossae, the city. So Epaphras was a local, we call him the local prophet. He was the man who grew up in Colossae and he's the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians, to his own people. And for that very reason, as we know, a prophet isn't welcome in his own hometown. There was some controversy about that. He brought the gospel when the Judaizers showed up. The Colossians thought, well, maybe Epaphras was wrong. I mean, he's from, he's from here. <laughs> and we're often wrong. Maybe these Judaizers, these strangers, these foreigners have the truth. Paul has nothing but commendation for Epaphras in this letter. And he points the Colossian Christians to Epaphras as a faithful minister. He says, this is a faithful minister unto you. He has faithfully brought the gospel to you. And I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you. He loves you. What a model Epaphras is. Look at verse 12 always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Isn't that amazing? Always laboring, meaning prayer is work. Prayer is labor. How many of you believe that? Prayer is some of the hardest thing that you could possibly do, isn't it? It seems like labor. It's easier to take a hammer and a nail and go out and build something than it is to pray. Paphras is always laboring in prayer. The word Laboring is actually the word agonizomai. And if you remember in Colossians chapter 2, there was an agony. Do you remember that? There was an agony for those of you who were there when we studied this. That is, there's a great conflict in the spirit 
for the souls of men. A great conflict. God is calling people to believe on Jesus Christ for their salvation, and your soul is at stake in this. This is not just your life. This is not just your, your short 70 years on this earth that's at stake. This is your eternal soul. And there's a struggle for it because Satan wants to destroy each and every one of our souls. And there's a great conflict. Paul calls, calls the conflict between the gospel and the false gospels of this world, he likens them to a huge battle in a gladiator arena like the Colosseum. Here we see Epaphras agonizomai. He's fighting in prayer for the Colossian Christians. He's involved in the battle. He's fighting for them and doing warfare for them so they may be saved and stand firm. Look what he prays for. That you may, what, do this, do that, and the other. What he prays for is that they may stand. That's what he's praying for. That they may stand and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. That they may stand perfect in Christ Jesus. That is, stand perfect in the sufficiency of Christ. I've stand, I'm standing in Christ by faith, and he is my completion, he is my perfection, he is my su- sufficiency. I'm not moving away from that. I'm not going to heed the message of the Judaizers, which is Christ isn't enough for you. Yeah, he's important. You need him. He's necessary, but he's not sufficient. Epaphras is praying that you would stand complete, perfect in Christ. And the word complete is a very special word. It's a compound word. Pleroforio means fully assured. Fully assured that you may stand perfect in Christ, simple faith, standing there in Christ, not being moved, and fully assured. Let me show you other verses where this word fully assured is used. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Pleroforio is used. It gives you an idea. Now, you can be fully assured about many different things, as we're going to see. Fully assured. Luke 1, 1. It says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, or we are fully assured about these things. Plero, forio, same thing. So in this case, Luke is saying we are fully assured, we completely believe this, that this is the truth about the life of Jesus. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 21. Romans 4, 21. Romans 4.21, this is now speaking about Abraham's faith. This is one of the most important verses in the book of Romans. Famous verse in Romans, the prototype of Abraham's faith. It says this, Abraham being fully persuaded, pleroforio, that what God had promised, God was able also to perform. So there, Abraham is fully assured that whatever God said he was going to do, he's going to do. Let's look at Romans 14, verse 5. Romans 14, verse 5. Paul says here, One man esteems one day above another. 
another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Let every man be fully assured. That means you're not doubting about it. No, I'm esteeming this day. I believe that. Or no, no days is to be set apart. I'm fully persuaded about that. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. We'll go to Hebrews and then we'll come back to Colossians. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6 verse 11. The same word, pleroforia, comes up again. And I think now, these, I'm going to share two verses in Hebrews, and I think these two verses really touch upon what Epaphras is praying for, for the Colossians. Hebrews 6 verse 11, it says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. What's, what's the desire of the author of Hebrews? That some of you, that most of you, that every one of you are fully assured in your hope all the way to the end. I believe this is what Epaphras is praying about. And go to Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 10.22. Although, let me start in verse 19. Actually, let me start in verse 17. Better. And listen to this, brothers. We're looking at the early church, but this is relevant to each and every one of us. Okay? Let's not read this like a history textbook. This is relevant to you. Apply it to yourself now. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of, of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in pleroforia of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Back to Colossians. Paul has already used the word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Colossians 2, 2, he says, that your hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. Now, do you think that it would be a good thing if you had full assurance of hope in Christ Jesus? Now, do you think that every believer has that automatically? No, because first of all, Epaphras is praying for it, right? Epaphras is praying that they would have the full assurance, that they would stand in that assurance, that they wouldn't be moved away from that assurance. Paul exhorts them to that assurance constantly.
Brothers and sisters, it's God's will that each one of us stand perfect and fully assured in Christ. And if you aren't fully assured in Christ, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but let me exhort you to study and seek and pray to have that full assurance. And let all doubts be removed. If you have a doubt, talk to somebody about it. If you're not sure about a question, you know, I would be fully sure, but there's this nagging question I have. Ask. Or maybe you're like, I'm not really fully sure because I haven't really read the whole Bible, so I don't know. I mean, I know the Bible says it here, but I don't know if it says it. Read. Pray. And be fully assured that Jesus Christ who died for you is enough. And if you simply believe in him, then you are perfect and you lack nothing. Come, be fully assured. We need Epaphrases, don't we? People who love their homes. People who love the people in their homes. Epaphras, it says in verse, 11, verse 13, he didn't just love Colossae. I bear him record that he has great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. These are two neighboring towns, two neighboring cities. It's good to have Epaphrases who love the people where he is from, the, peop- the people where he lives. He's not always just longing to be gone, you know? Can't wait to get out of here, you know? It's, he's not thinking that. He's saying, I, I want, he's wanting to be there. He's wanting to be a part of it. He's praying for them. And even for the neighboring towns, Brigham City. Clarkston. Paul gives him a special commendation in verse 13, doesn't he? I bear him record. He has great zeal for you. That's a wonderful commendation to have from an apostle. Luke. Verse 14. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke traveled with Paul to Rome. If you look in the book of Acts, you will find that it changes from saying he did this and he did that and he went there and he preached here to we went here and we did that and we came to this place and we preached the gospel here. When it says we, it's because suddenly the author of the the book of Acts is involved and that is Luke. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. Luke traveled with Paul on different occasions including his final imprisoned journey to Rome. And here's the beautiful thing to note about Luke. Luke stood by Paul to the very end. Because as we already read in Timothy, do you remember it says, only Luke is with me. Remember that? Only Luke. The Apostle Paul is all by himself in Rome. Only Luke is with me. That doesn't mean that there was not Christians outside of Rome who were with Paul in spirit. But Luke stood by the Apostle Paul even when others deserted him. It's wonderful to have Luke's in your life, isn't it? Someone that will stand by you through thick and thin. And even when your sorry behind is dragged off to jail, Luke sticks with you. (laughs) Right? And even when everyone else questions and says, you've gone too far, Luke sticks with you. Demas, on the other hand, 
very important person in the New Testament, even though such little is written about him. Demas is an extremely important person. Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Once here in Colossians, in verse 14, all it says is, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. In Philemon, the exact same thing. My fellow laborers greet you, Demas and Luke. And one more time, as he mentioned, in 2 Timothy. And why don't you turn there one more time? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Demas has forsaken me, having loved... That means he doesn't want anything more to do with the Apostle Paul. And he has shown that he's loved the present world more than the kingdom of God. And this amazing thing about Demas is that a person, listen to this, can be in the closest proximity to Christians, to even the apostle, Paul, and in the end forsake the faith. Isn't that amazing? In the closest proximity to the apostle Paul. I mean, you're with Paul, you're hearing Paul's sermons, you're traveling with Paul, you're seeing miracles, you're doing all these things, and in the end you say, I don't want anything to do with Apostle Paul anymore and this gospel that he preaches. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus may have forsaken professing Christ. Maybe he did. We don't know. Maybe he didn't. But I believe in his forsaking of Paul, he was forsaking the gospel of Paul. Here's the lesson we learn of Demas. Going to church, being around Christians, talking the talk, going on mission trips, doesn't make you a Christian. Does it? Famous little joke. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And doing all these churchy things, playing on the worship team, giving a Bible study even, I'm sure Demas labored with Paul. John says in the book of 1 John that if they had been of us, they wouldn't have left us. But they left us to show that they were never of us, ever. They were never of us. So what we need to make sure is that our Christianity isn't just, we don't believe we're Christians just because we go to church. We don't believe we're Christians just because we read the Bible. We don't believe we're Christians just because we profess faith in Jesus, even. We don't believe we're Christians just because we do these good things that Christians are supposed to do. Or I can list all the books of the Bible in order and backwards. And I can recite Psalm 23 with my eyes closed. Being a Christian, being a Christian means that you are trusting in Jesus Christ as all of your righteousness with God. That what 
he did on the cross, when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, and I'm putting my faith in him, what he did on the cross is enough for me. I'm a sinner. My works do not make me right with God. Going to church does not make me right with God. Reading my Bible, praying does not make me right with God. Even my own faith doesn't make me right with God. Jesus Christ makes me right with God through faith. He is the one who saves me. And he is enough for me. And I don't need anything else. And Demas obviously didn't believe that. Maybe he was impressed by the apostles' zeal. Maybe he was impressed by the miracles. Maybe he believed Jesus was the Christ. But he wasn't trusting in Jesus and what he did for him as enough. And it ultimately showed in the end. So be sure that you are trusting in Jesus and in him alone. Because you're not fooling anybody but yourself. You know, maybe you're like, well, I don't want others to think I'm not a Christian. Forget that. We will rejoice with you if you say, I don't think I'm a Christian. Because I thought I was, but I really, I, I don't think I am. Can you help me? You know, we will rejoice with you. Your own soul's at stake in that. We need to move along. Nymphus says, verse 15, Paul says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. So Nymphus is actually the, uh, the man whom the Laodicean church, or at least part of it, uh, meets in his house. So what we learn here is that in the early church, the early church community was mostly house churches. That's one thing we learn about the New Testament. It's mostly house churches. But let's not think that, that we need to force that. Because some people will read in the New Testament and say, you know, there's all these house churches. They never built any buildings. And some people think, that's the problem with the church today, you know? The whole problem with the church today is that we build buildings and we meet in them. If only we met in house churches again, everything would be okay. <laughs> I can tell you that's, that's such an ignorance, ignorant idea. Listen, the health of the church does not depend on where you meet. <laughs> you can meet in a house church and be completely lost. <laughs> in fact, these house churches had... Lots of troubles, didn't they? And most of them ended up in disarray. No, let's not be fooled by talk like that. Being in a house church doesn't make a church healthy. Now, there's advantages to being in a house church. A house church is more intimate, isn't it? But at the same time, there's a disadvantage. A house church is less influential, Right? And so these are the struggles that men like Nymphus need to consider who, who meet in their homes and who probably are leaders in the, in, the, in the church. Intimacy or influence. If we are house churches, that means we need to work extra hard to be influential. The early church was, a, was at first house churches, but they were very influential because they prayed and they preached boldly. Today, but they still had that intimacy of the house church. But today, we seem to be more influential and less intimate. We can now make all sorts of publications. You know, big churches have money to do stuff, and that's great. I'm sure Paul had, would have nothing wrong with that. Paul would say, wow, this is awesome. You know, we're get, there's organization. We can get things done. But don't lose intimacy. Because
because if you lose intimacy, then we've lost everything. We don't want to just be influential. We want to be intimate. We want to be a community that loves each other, that knows each other, that loves Christ. And not just a business. That's a danger with being organized. And that's what happened. The church got organized and it became a business. And it lost vital connection with the person of God and with one another. So maybe you relate with Nymphus. What does your church need? Intimacy or influence? Because both of these things are important. And then you'll notice that it says the church at Laodicea in verse 16. When the epistle is read among you, when this epistle, this letter to the Colossians, when it is read among you, notice what he says here, cause that it be read also in the church of Laodicea. Now I want to suggest something that the church of Laodicea needed to read this letter to the Colossians too because they also had a Judaizer problem or would have one. Because Colossians we know is all about this. There's men who are not denying Christ directly but are denying his sufficiency. And that's why the whole book of Colossians is written. You stand firm in the completeness of Christ. He says you Make sure the Laodiceans read this too. They need to read this too. Because they're going to be tempted also. Maybe they are being tempted, but they're going to be to move away. And let me suggest that when we go to the Revelation, the church that seems to get the worst rebuke is the church of Laodicea, right? Let me suggest that the reason why that church is the way they are is because of the Judaizers. They needed to read this. They probably did read it. But guess what? from the writing of this letter to the time that John wrote by the Spirit, Revelation, there was about 40 years. And a lot can happen in 40 years. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we might be strong now. Maybe the Colossian church was strong. Maybe the Laodicean church was strong. In Colossians, when Paul writes there, he doesn't doesn't say you have moved away. He's just saying be warned not to move away. But here's the thing. All Saints Church, for example, just take this gathering. Maybe we're strong in grace. Maybe we're preaching about grace all the time. Are we going to be strong 40 years from now? That's the question. And if all we think is, oh, we're strong now, so we don't need to worry, then I can probably guess 40 years from now, God forbid, someone might be standing here preaching something that's not, as, not so gracious. Maybe it's not a complete departure from the gospel, but it's a step. And then another 20 years, and it's another step. Until finally, it's become unevangelical altogether. And we're not preaching the gospel from here at all. You see, we need to not just think about ourselves only, and we do, but we need to make sure that we are strong for the future as well. And that we make sure that a a gathering is protected in the long run for our children, for our kids. Because they're going to be the leaders one day. You know, as as we get old and, and die kids take over are we going to be strong Paul says in the book of Acts to the Ephesian church the elders there he says we have to read it go to Acts we've read it many times but I'll read it again because it's so important and I know we're going to need to wrap this up soon but Acts chapter 20 we have to read this again because it's so important 
Acts 20, verse 28. And the church in Ephesus was one of the strongest churches in the early church. And in Revelation, 40 years later, it was a mess. Acts 20, verse 28. One of the strongest churches turned out to be in disarray. Paul saw the whole thing from the beginning. That's why he has tears when he says this. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departing, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, remember, that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. It's important. Now that was a strong church. And Paul's saying, for three years, even though you guys were strong, I pleaded with you with tears day and night. Watch, 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 watch it. So it's not a game. And we either stand or we fall because of the nature of the gospel. It's an all or nothing thing, isn't it? You're either trusting in Christ for your sufficiency or you're not. We either stand or fall. Verse 17, Archippus. Archippus, we know only here he's mentioned in Philemon. And what we can gather is that he was a Colossian and he was probably a member of Philemon's house. Probably a member, a family member in Philemon's house. And all he he says to him here is this. We don't know what his ministry is, but we know that he needs exhortation to fulfill it. And so it says here, tell Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord, that you fulfill it. We don't know what it was, and that's not important. But we know that he needs exhortation to fulfill it. Many of us, God has given us something to do. You know that God has put something on your heart to do. But you need exhortation to do it. Because different things can prevent you from fulfilling that which God has called you to. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe other things are getting in the way. Busyness. Busyness can get in the way procrastination Paul says do it what God has told you to do don't wait do it don't let anything get in the way and so maybe you relate to Archippus maybe today you uh, are hearing something in that word yeah I know there's something I, I feel called to do maybe God has put it on your heart to write a letter to somebody maybe you just got it on your heart I really want to write a letter. I, want, I feel like I should call this person. I feel like that would be a good thing. Call them and encourage them. I really want to see what can be done about this ministry or that ministry here. You know, I saw this person on the bus the other day. I really want to talk to them. Whatever it may be, it could be big and it could be small. Don't let fear, busyness, procrastination stop you from fulfilling that which God 
has called you to do. Maybe you need exhortation, and I'm giving it to you right now. Do it. And fulfill that which God has put on your heart to do. Okay, in closing, verse 18. Paul says, first of all, he writes with his own hand, and he says, remember my bonds. And he says, remember my bonds, I believe, for three reasons. First of all, he says, remember my bonds to fortify them. Remember who's writing to you. Apostle who's in chains for the God. Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary. He said, he does not say, remember I'm a prisoner and send me money. Send me money. More money next year. God will triple, double, quadruple. He doesn't say that. He says, remember I am in bonds as the apostle of the Gentiles and let this confirm your faith in the gospel of Christ. The second reason I believe he writes to him is to show them an example of suffering for the gospel. Remember my bonds. So if they come at you, you have an example. The gospel's worth going to prison for, or the gospel's worth going to heaven for. And three, to recruit their prayers. Remember my bond and pray for me. I need prayer. And we ought to also pray for those who are in bonds or our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted such as the Egyptian church that we've heard about today. We should pray for them because they need that. And if you were in bonds, you'd probably write the same thing. Remember my bonds. Paul ends the letter to the Colossians the same way he begins it, with grace. He says, grace be with you. It's the same way he begins it. I think all of Paul's letters end that way and begin that way. Every letter of Paul starts, grace be with you, ends, grace be with you. Because grace is what the whole thing is all about. So in conclusion then, to our letter of the Colossians, what do we learn? We learn that Christ is sufficient for each of us. Let us stand perfect and fully assured in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for all mankind and for dying upon the cross paying for our sins canceling out the certificate of debt and making us totally free from all condemnation thank you that we're justified freely by your grace and that we are perfect and complete in you and I pray that each one of us would be fully assured of this. That we wouldn't be moved away from it. I pray that each one of us would set our mind on things above. Fixing our minds on things above. And looking to the day when Christ, who is our life, will appear, we also will appear with him in glory. God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for its relevance. And we just worship you because you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.